More than meets the eye. Each of you is more than meets the eye. God's been good to all of us. See our lives changing. What you see before you today is a flawed, frail human being. But there is hope that I'll be more tomorrow than I was today. That's the hope of the Gospel. We had some excellent meetings this week. Ladies, I'm really sorry that you can't come to the mogul meeting. I guess we're going to have to start something for you. Our mogul meeting is Men of God Advancing Love. And it was something spectacular. Seven of us at the table. We have affectionately come to know as the Table of Seven. Even when there's 700, we're going to call it the Table of Seven because it was truly a perfect environment. We'd love to tell you about what happens at the Table of Seven, but we've taken an oath. What happens at the Table of Seven stays at the Table of Seven. Then we went upstairs to pray, and that's affectionately become known as the Upper Room. And whether we meet in a church with a basement or a church that's one story, when we go to this meeting and leave the Table of Seven, we will always go to the Upper Room. I love how God's been working this out. You know, I couldn't be clever enough to come up with this kind of stuff, but it's good. And out of that meeting birthed an idea for me. It was the three-stranded cord. It comes from Ecclesiastes, and uh, it's based on fellowship. So that's going to be our topic this morning. But I started to tell you about the pulpit. I know it's undone here in front of you, but you'll get to see it transform over the next few weeks. My stepfather, Gary, who raised me, is going to be in town here this next week, and uh, I began this project, but I wanted him to help me complete it because I thought that that'd be a neat thing forever. It's important in our lives that we have little keepsakes with one another that remind us of one another because there'll be a day when all that remains on the earth is what you did for the Lord. And as that happens in each one of our lives, it's important to have things around us that remind us of each other, isn't it? I wear a ring on my hand that reminds me of the day I was married. On another hand, a man named Buzz Treme, who was like a father to me, took a silver plate, cut strips of silver out of it, and hammered it into a ring and gave it to me for my 20th birthday. And never taken it off because it reminds me of a special place in time with him. You know, this pulpit, I think, will be something that will remind me of a place with my adopted father. Isn't that awesome? Come on. Well, y'all in Ecclesiastes now? I gave you more time, didn't I? Ecclesiastes 4, we're going to pick up in verse 8. says, There was a man all alone. Boo, hiss. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless a miserable business. The guy was doing all right. He had a business. He was working very hard. But who would he share it with? You know, life is not worth living without having somebody to share your life with. Really not. Now, if you're single in here, this will make you squirm for a few minutes. I promise we're not just talking about a spouse. He said son or brother to share it with. In everybody's life, whether male or female, there should be a son and a brother. Somebody that you can pour out into what God has poured into you. And somebody who will run right along with you and help you the way. I found this to be one of the most healthy principles in my life. The best thing that God ever did for me was put me in confrontation with Matthew Piro. We were 15 years old and he said something ugly to my wife at the time, my girlfriend. He was just repeating what he had heard. 
you know, from somebody. And that put us into confrontation. That confrontation gave us the opportunity to have a friendship. God did that. So I have a brother that runs alongside me in this race. And a lot of times I really need that. Funny thing about these brotherly roles, they switch places sometimes. Matthew baptized me when I got born again. Isn't that neat? Baptized me in a public apartment swimming pool. They ran from the water like cockroaches from the light. It was funny. It was a Saturday morning. After Matthew baptized me, some time went by and I was ordained and I became one of Matthew's pastors. That's kind of a reversal of the roles, isn't it? Then some more time goes by and Matthew and I are pastors together. You know? Barnabas and Paul's relationship was like that a lot. Barnabas took young Saul under his wing, showed him the ropes. Then at some point in Acts, Saul became the chief speaker, or Paul became the chief speaker. Isn't that interesting? You know, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom. We need to quit sizing each other up, trying to measure and see who's ahead and who's below. You're all equal. You're all equal. Any of you has the potential to crack, rebuke, encourage each other. That's what the kingdom's about. That's life. You're a fool if you spurn that kind of interaction with people. You hear me? The Bible says it over and over and over. You are a fool if you do not love the correction of a wise person. Even Judah in this church is becoming wise because the Scripture makes him wise. But this poor guy is all alone. So it's called a miserable business. Let me read to you the rest of this, and we're going to come back to this several times, so you want to keep your Bible marker here. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. I can't help it. I hear Mr. T. Because I was a little boy when he was popular. I pity the fool. <laughs> I pity the fool that falls down and has no one to help him up. That is a pitiable thing. We are centrifugal by nature. Our what has been put in us as a deposit is supposed to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. What is in you is supposed to spin outwards constantly. And so when you are all alone, when you are isolated and by yourself, something's wrong. You're not working according to the design that God called you to work for. You don't see the kind of return for your work that you should see. You're more vulnerable than you should be. One of the features of this men's meeting that we had the other day has been the heart of our church for a long time. But it is basically unity among brothers so that you are never alone. Distance can separate you. Circumstances can separate you. But you are never really alone. Now, we know we're not because Jesus is with us. His Spirit is in us, right? That's great. But like somebody told me one time, sometimes you just need Jesus with a little skin on him. It is great to have the fellowship of the Spirit. But I am still a pretty fragile, carnal human being. And every once in a while, I just need to see somebody act a little bit like Jesus. need to be able to join hands with somebody that I touch and I feel and is like Jesus to me. We'll make a pledge to each other. Jesus can sit on your left and right in the people that are here. And the only thing that you have to do is be like Jesus for them. Isn't that awesome? That's how we become the body of Christ. All right, so two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But I pity the fool, I'm sorry, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how will one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. 
A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. God desired us to dwell in unity with the brothers. And I want to explore that a little bit today. Turn with me to Genesis 2. That didn't surprise you, does it? Genesis 2. Leave your marker in Ecclesiastes because we're going to come back several times. You know, when I stand up here and I preach, I feel more at home with you guys than anywhere else that I could be on the planet. And it doesn't mean that I have to be preaching. I feel more at home with you guys anywhere we are than anywhere else I could be. I love knowing when I pull in this driveway, this house, this building, and your lives are a testament to the fact that I'm doing what God's called me to do. And that way you're like letters that remind me of God's will for my life. You're like memorial stones reminding me of the mighty deeds that God has accomplished in you, through you, as a result of His work in me. That's awesome. Each time you see each other, you should think of those things. You know? The time that Stephen helped you do something, Craig helped you do something, and you felt a little bit closer to God. You felt His kingdom extend into your life. This is an awesome thing. Do everything that you can to embrace it with all of your heart. I promise it will be a better return for your work. I promise. We were never meant to lead isolated, egocentric type lives. Something's wrong. In America, we have the idea that each man is an island. My faith, my Savior, my personal relationship with Jesus. If something's wrong, it's not that you can't have each one of those things, but that's not what the Bible presents. It presents a communal faith, a worldwide Savior named Jesus. Somebody who belongs to the entire body of Christ and whosoever shall call upon His name. We need that sense of community because we were built for it. You go to church and that's the only place you gather with friends. Your life is woefully missing something. You all in Genesis 2? All right. God created Adam. And if Adam was an American, that's all we would have needed. Because Adam would have been an island to himself. He would have a relationship with God. He would be my God, my Jesus, my relationship, my Savior, my this, 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 this. I told you about the bumper sticker in a Jewish community. The Christians wanted to outreach to the Jews. They said, I found him. Right? I found him. The Jewish response is a bumper sticker that said, We never lost him. Do you hear the difference between I found him and we never lost him? You need to begin to view yourself not just as Brad or Patricia or Jennifer or Judah, but as a member of the body of Christ, we. We. We need a communal sense of belonging in the body. It's what makes life worth living. You are never really alone. Not just because Jesus is with you, but because He's with you in His people. That will change your life. That will build churches. That will build lives. It will build strong children. It will build all that you ever need. Because what you lack, your brother has. Because the body of Christ lacks no good thing. God's given it all to us. It's just our job to interact. Y'all in Genesis 2? Y'all been there for a while. You're waiting on me, aren't you? Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. 
It was God's idea that His creation, man, should not be alone. And you know that God gave Adam a wife, Eve. But that's beside the point. The helper that was suitable for him was a wife. Paul speaks of people with a gifting that their helper is not a wife. Who did Paul have in his life? Who didn't Paul have in his life? Paul had Barnabas for the longest time, right? Paul and Barnabas had a little split though, didn't they? That's good, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. They probably both left that a little bit stronger. They went on, and what happened? Barnabas picks up his nephew, doesn't he? Who does Paul pick up? Silas. Why didn't God just let them go their own way all alone? It's interesting, huh? We have this mentality that says there has to be an alpha male. There needs to be one that everybody else rallies around. I haven't found that in the Bible. I haven't. Whether I'm looking at David and seeing Jonathan, or I'm looking at Moses and seeing Aaron, or I'm looking at James and seeing John, or Peter and seeing Andrew, whatever, there seems to be this communal sense starting with pairs of two and moving forward because there's a better return for your labor with two. If you're all alone, it may be that you can't work with anyone else and you need to examine your life. It may be that you are so scared of letting people see who you are that you won't allow yourself to work with anyone else. This should not be. God says it's not good that you're alone. You need a helper suitable for you. Now what's so funny about God is He knows what's suitable for you and you don't. Those of you that are married, when you were 16, especially you guys, when you were 16 and you thought of what a good wife is, Hopefully that image has changed a little bit. Good wife might not be what you see on the cover of a magazine. Good wife might be somebody who will stand beside you, who is full of faith, who loves you, who is a suitable helper for you. Isn't that interesting? We don't always know what's suitable for us, but God does. Genesis 2.18, we find out it's not good for man to be alone. Well, in Ecclesiastes 4.8, which we read a minute ago, we saw that a man was toiling and he was laboring, but he had neither brother nor son. He had nobody to share this with. He had no one to help him along the way. What a sad thing. All of his exploits, who could he tell them to? All that he accomplished, who would know, learn, or benefit from it? All the wealth that he gathered, what was it? Just garbage that would go away when he died, huh? The devil wants to isolate you. Doc, let me read you something here. It's called this the carpenter shop. It was a story that I found this morning. It said, An old legend tells us of a noisy carpenter shop in which the tools of the trade were arguing among themselves. Brother Hammer was told by his fellow tools that he would have to leave because he was too noisy. To which he replied, If I'm to leave the carpenter shop, Brother Gimlet must go too. He's so insignificant that he only makes a very small impression. Little brother Gimlet arose and said, All right, but if I leave, then brother Screw must also go. You have to turn him around and around again and again just to get him to go anywhere. (laughs) Brother Screw said, If you wish, I will go, but brother Plain must leave also. All his work is surface, superficial and lacks any depth to it. 
To this, Brother Plain replied, Well, Brother Rule will have to withdraw himself also if I do, for he's always measuring others as though he were the only one who is right. (laughs) Brother Rule then complained against Brother Sandpaper and said, I just do not care. He is rougher than he ought to be, and he is always rubbing people the wrong way. In the midst of this discussion, the carpenter showed up to his workshop. He walked in. He had come to perform his day's work. He put his apron on and he went to the bench to make a pulpit. He employed the screw, the gimlet, the sandpaper, the saw, the hammer, the plane, and all the other tools. After the day's work was over and the pulpit was finished, Brother Saul arose and said, Brethren, I perceive that all of us are laborers together with God. Is it not wonderful how God uses all of us and our unique gifts in the building of His pulpit? You can look at your brother on the left and your brother on the right and say, man, they're different than me. And I don't like some of the differences. It's like sandpaper. Perhaps God put the sandpaper in your life to smooth out your rough edges. Perhaps somebody who seems superficial to you and all they do is talk about the love of God and they don't understand, quote unquote, the deep things of God is there just to plane off the dirtiness that doesn't need to be in your life. Each one of us has our unique function and our unique goal. We've been preaching about not letting fear keep you from interacting with people. We've been preaching about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this morning I want to talk to you about how to be woven into a threefold cord. Why it's necessary. Why there's strength in it. Why every person is incomplete without the people God has called to be suitable helpers in their lives. Is that okay with you? Can I do that? In Isaiah 56, now turn with me to Isaiah. If I don't hear pages turn, then I get all hurt inside. I don't know about you, but I believe God is big enough to work through our quirky personalities to complete His building project. I mean, with Matthew, I have my doubts. But, (laughs) you know, God knew exactly. Have you ever noticed that Matthew's more laid back than I am? Matt's one of those guys you can have a phone conversation with where he only says seven or eight words. I think in the abundance of my words, you know, I win every argument. In the abundance of my words, I'll accomplish every task. Matt finds it necessary just to choose his words carefully. You begin to see why God matches us up the way that He does, don't you? When you look at husbands and wives, isn't it funny to see how different they can be? You know? So often the wife is neat and organized and structured, and the husband's a free spirit who floats everywhere, does everything. This can cause conflict when the Spirit of God is not promoting unity, when you're not learning to die to self and be woven together. But where the Spirit is, there's the freedom to be who you were called to be. There's the freedom to interact with one another without judgment and condemnation. There's the freedom to see your spouse's weaknesses as an opportunity for you to aid them. There's the freedom to mesh in the way that God has called you to be and be the one new man. Now, if you thought this was just about spouses, listen to what Isaiah 56 says. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. I'd like you to remember that that was written in 740 B.C. (laughs) 
He's basically telling you, hey, get right. Salvation is at hand. Been waiting a while, haven't we? That's why the New Testament writers say salvation is closer now than when we first believed. And my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds fast to it, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from His people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. The guy in Ecclesiastes had no son. He had no brother. He had no return for his work. Well, what happens? You say, Eric, you're talking about spouses. What happens when you're called to be single, at least for a time period? What do you do then? Where's your suitable helper? The Bible says, don't let a eunuch say he's only a dry tree. Don't you let a foreigner, somebody who is outside of the community of God, see himself as excluded. Because in Christ, we find our suitable helper. In the community of faith, we find the people that we are supposed to be matched with. Watch what he says to this eunuch. I love this. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Where do you get this name and this memorial? You get it within the temple, within the temple. Whatever you lack, you will find inside of the temple of God, which is His people. Say, well, I have no family. They all died tragically. I've moved away. My family's on one continent and I'm on another. I'm all alone. Not if you're in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, He will give you a name. He will give you a memorial that is better than having many sons and daughters because your name speaks of your reputation and who you are. And in the body of Christ, inside the temple, staying inside the body of Christ, you will find everything that you need, even if you're unable to have children. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, and all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. When you meet people that are isolated, they are never happy. Never. You know, it's even become a staple in movies and in books. You have somebody who's a hermit who lives alone and has a Scrooge-like personality. This is because no matter who you are, if you observe human beings, to be isolated alone means that you're easy prey for the enemy. You'll dwell on thoughts you ought not dwell. You'll have no strength because the joy of the Lord will not be in you. You were made to interact with people. If that's been painful for you in the past, get over it. If it's been disappointing for you in the past, get over it. You're now inside the temple walls. God wants to build you a great name and reputation. I've had in my heart this conversation that I have. Someone where they really reveal something that is, is true about every human being. person looked right at me and said, you know, I found out my most basic need is to be respected. In the Bible, a name was your reputation. You had a great name or you had a bad name. Your name was everything. The Bible says within the temple and its walls, you will have a memorial. What is a memorial? 
It's a testament to the way that you've loved God. It's a testament to what God's done in you. And you will have a great name. You want to find out how to be great? Interact with the people of God. They will teach you. What I love about this fellowship is you teach me to be a better man than I already am. You know? I don't say that like I'm a good man. I'm telling you that when I'm around you, I aspire to be a better man. One of the most humbling things in my life is when I take an inventory of my friends. And I look and I think that I'm not worthy to be in their number. I look at their lives and say their holiness outweighs mine. Their love for God outweighs mine. Their knowledge outweighs mine. And then I'm around them and they feel the same way, except I'm on the other side of the list. Sometimes I can even sit and almost dwell in self-pity and think, my God, I don't get anything right. I screw this up every day of my life. And then all I have to do is meditate on the men that I consider great and realize they esteem me. That makes me feel like I have worth because it's Jesus in them and Jesus in me that esteems me. Friends, we're made to interact. There's another lie of the enemy that will come in and say, yes, you're made to interact. That's what a family is for. Then why did Jesus say your love for Him must cause your love for your mother and father to look like hate? That if you weren't willing to walk away from your family, for Him, you weren't worthy of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not just about your family. It's about the larger corporate family in Christ. When people tell me, I moved here or there to be closer to family, I think, well, you missed the boat. Family's the smallest part of this. If you're in this church, you're in my family. I've never made any bones about that. I don't hide that when speaking with my blood relatives. I don't lessen it. I don't soften it. I'm closer to the people in my church than I am people that have, quote-unquote, the same blood in our veins. Because you and I share a different blood. We're part of a royal family. I one time told Jan and Gary Kinchin, they said, it's like you love that church more than you love me. I said, I absolutely do, but you can come and be a part of the church. I still feel that way today. I feel that way about all of my family. That's why I spend more time with you than I do anybody else. This is inside the temple. It's inside the walls. If I spend time with my secular family, you know why I do it? Hoping that they'll see something in me of worth and want to join the body of Christ. Let's keep going. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Every kind of people. That word nations there doesn't just mean political and geographical entities. It speaks of the different kinds of human beings that are on the earth. God's house was supposed to be a house of diversity. It's supposed to be a house where men from every nation on the planet would gather and call upon their Heavenly Father. You know what that means? That means that whoever sits on your left, right, before you and behind you is supposed to be different from you. One of the neatest things in this meeting I was in the other night is when I looked around the table and heard others comment about it. There wasn't a single person there that I would say was like me. That means that it's a good group, doesn't it? My slot, I'm filling. Matt's slot, he's filling. Craig's slot, he's filling. Brad's slot, he's filling. It's not wrong to be the way that you are. How many times have you felt that way? Well, I'm not like Pastor so-and-so. That must be wrong. I need to be more like him. I'm not like... This is just the way I am and it's not good. Now, you're not allowed to stay the way you are. You have to be transformed into the image of Christ. That was last week. But the way that you are is also by God's design. And it's a good thing. I like that we're quirky. 
said, brother, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You're quirky. Okay, I'm quirky. I like that. It's what makes us unique. I like that Vincent laughs and jokes about things that some people would only cry and cry and whine about. I like that Charlotte will come over and smile and laugh with me. I like that. I like that Brad interacts with me on a theological level all the time. It's where his joy is. He wants to dissect. He wants to break down. He wants to look at it in a way that's different than Jennifer Hall. But Jennifer Hall is one of the few people I've met that can get on her knees, clean the toilet, and smile while she does it. I like that. I like that Steve will lose himself in worship and ram his head into the air conditioner. <laughs> We're different people, and that's what makes it unique, and that's what's supposed to draw you to one another, not repel you. You should be happy when you're a screw that has to turn round and round and round to get anywhere when you look at the plane. Because he's different than you are. He can do something you can't do. That's exciting. That's good. That's the body of Christ. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. If you think this bunch is eclectic now, wait till God adds 20 more people. I don't care what people say about us. We will be a diverse group of people learning to merge our lives together. The only thing I'll ever be intolerant of here is people who will not mesh and will not merge. When you find a goat among the sheep, the goat gets a chance to become a sheep before he gets slaughtered. But I absolutely will lay hands on a goat and send them outside the camp. Because this group is meant to grow in unity. I won't allow anything to hinder that. Not someone's pride over their doctrine. Not someone's pride over their high position. Not somebody's judgmental attitude. Not anything. No matter what it's masked as. Because what we are called to do is be bound together and accomplish things for Jesus as the body of Christ. And I'll tell you a secret. It's not just the people in this room. There are those that listen on the internet. There are those that read our work. There are people everywhere that are feeling a unity with us. That's how you know that they're in the body of Christ and more than that, called to be a part of this local body. Even if they're separated by distance. When people are fed by what you do. When they're drawn to what you do. When they desire to interact with you and will not let four or five hundred miles separate you. Oh, well, then you know they're supposed to be a part of you. Praise God, we live in an age of internet, television, and uh, phone lines, right? I recently heard of a brother in Chicago that I believe is supposed to have some unity with us. And he's being tempted to not have that unity. That doesn't make him a bad guy. That makes him a human being. makes him normal, just like us. But I don't intend to let that occur. I wouldn't be a good pastor if I did, would I? So, well, he doesn't call you pastor. It's okay. It's what I'm called to do. You don't have to acknowledge my function. It's just who I am. I wasn't going to read you this, but I want to now. I think you'll like this. Everybody know who Aesop is? Okay. One of Aesop's fables tells of four oxen who were such great friends that they always kept together when feeding. It's not unlike us. Have a meal, we're all here in perfect unity, huh? A lion watched them for many days with longing in his eyes. But never being able to find one apart from the rest, he was afraid to attack them. You guys watch National Geographic. Y'all see how this works. The lions watch for the strugglers. 
the, those who, who trail behind, those who are separated, who are sick or are hurt. This lion's waiting, looking for an opportunity. Whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by horns. God gave you armor, saints. It's listed in Ephesians 6.10. It has to do with the way that you live and interact with other people. The belt of truth. wouldn't be the belt of truth if you didn't have somebody else in your life to be truthful with, would it? Hmm. Breastplate of righteousness. wouldn't be the breastplate of righteousness if you didn't have other people in your life that recognized your deeds were righteous so that it protected you when somebody said you were unrighteous. Even the armor speaks of the way you're supposed to interact with people. These oxen were using the armor that God gave them. Their anointing, their calling, their authority, their horns. And when the enemy approached, they simply backed into each other so that they were ready at all different sides. This is what Christians are to do. This is what the church is. When Brother Judah says, I'm having a problem, that's okay. Because Sister Charlotte will stand back to back with him in whichever way the enemy attacks. One of them will have the sword and the spirit there in hand. One of them will have the shield of faith there in hand to protect the other. That's why there was no armor on the backside. You are not an island. You are not an individual before God alone. You are a part of the community of believers, the body of Christ. So, this lion's looking with longing. Whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by horns. At length, he succeeded in awakening jealousy among them, which grew into mutual aversion. And they strayed a considerable distance from each other. The lion fell upon them singly and killed them all. That's one of Aesop's fables. A fable is a story that is not true, and yet I find profound truth in that. I have found in the body of Christ there is a consistent effort to cause jealousy, dissension, aversion for each other. Well, I love Cassidy, but you know, I just don't know what to think about Patricia. Well, I love Patricia, but I just don't know what to think about Judah. That kind of dissension gets in, and if you don't deal with it, it begins to separate, and all it is is the lion looking for the opportunity to single you out and devour you. Do you know when you see this? You see this every time you run across a Christian that says, I was in church, but I got hurt. All that means is they were isolated and devoured. We need to make it our goal not to let that happen. That means sometimes you may get mad at me because I'll push you into a situation that's uncomfortable for you. If it's uncomfortable for you to be standing back to back with the other oxen, we have to learn to get over our uncomfortable fears, don't we? I found in the body of Christ that intimacy comes from spending time with each other in the trenches. When Matthew and Cassidy first got here, and forgive me that I use us as examples all the time, but I figure that's what God called us to do. It's why pastors. There was kind of a their family, our family mentality. We all meant well. We loved each other very much. But these are old habits that are hard to break. Now I don't think twice about correcting their kids or them correcting mine. I don't think twice about who brought the chicken or the steak because we've merged into one family. Now that could be weird for people. People who talk like that end up raising chickens in some foreign state drinking Kool-Aid and handling snakes or doing some other weird thing. I'm not talking about doing anything but loving Jesus with all of our hearts and sharing everything that we have, our lives, our time, our labor, everything. Get out of your head, my family, your family, and think of the family 
of God. If you think somebody's close to me in my life because they're family, you're sadly mistaken. Only reason anybody's close to me is because I see potential. I see potential in them to be just like Jesus. And I hope they see the same potential in me. Isaiah 56 makes it clear that even if you were a eunuch or a foreigner, God desires you to be gathered in along with all of the other exiles and continually add to the number so that He can build a great name for you within His walls. Turning to Genesis 15, I want to see the father of the faithful. Y'all turned into Genesis 15? In Genesis 15, you hear Abraham complaining a little bit. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Ah, Adonai, Yahweh, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, since a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. The Bible tells us in Genesis 18 that God chose Abraham because he would teach those coming after him, his children, what is right. Here we're speaking of a child coming from his very own body. But Romans in the fourth chapter tells us that anyone who has faith is a child of Abraham. The way that Abraham has more children than stars in the sky is because Abraham began something and shared it with other people that caused us to be like his offspring. He specifically believed what God said to the point that it was credited to him as righteousness, though he had none of his own. We have learned from his lesson. We believe until it's credited to us as righteousness. In the beginning of this message, a man in Ecclesiastes toiled and toiled and toiled, but he had no brother. He had no son to share it with. Look around you, saints. God has given you brothers to run this with. If you look hard enough, He will raise up sons for you to invest in. They don't have to come from your own body. That's how this started. But you see it worked into a spiritual offspring. I'm never happier in my life than when I feel like I have something to contribute to the life of another. It's more blessed to give than receive. You thought that was just about Christmas presents, right? Just about financial blessings. You were made to want to contribute something. And when you are sad, and when you are depressed, and you feel withdrawn, it's because the devil has told you you have nothing to contribute. The weirder you think you are, the odder you think that you are, the more you are to realize you have to contribute, because that would mean you have things other people don't have. We need to get out of this mentality that says, I'm not like everybody else, so I'm not of worth. It's because you're not like everybody else that you are of great worth. I've been telling you that the most precious substance on the planet was shed for you. That happens this week as we relive Passover. As we think about the cross, that happens this week. It was shed for you because you have a function to fulfill in the body of Christ. 
And of course it's not like my function. Of course it's not like Steve's or Darnell's. Of course it's not like Brad's. It's unique because there's lots of work to be done. Vincent will accomplish things in his life I couldn't dream of. Things that I might not understand. Forgive the expression, Vincent, but it's because he sees things differently than I do and that's how God caught it. I see things differently than Matthew does. He does differently than me. The Hebrews teach that this Word is like light shining through a 70-sided prism. And to them, 70 is just a way like we use the word million. It just means an infinite number of, of division in the light going out. So that one person looks and he sees red, and another person looks and he sees blue, but they all see beautiful colors. I'm happy that we're not just alike. We need to learn to embrace our diversity. We need to learn for our diversity not to keep us from being in unity because there's a return for our work if we'll stick together. Abraham was promised children. Romans 4 says that he's the heir of the world and the father of all who believe. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? In Hebrews 10, let's turn there. Y'all have 20 more minutes to spend with me today? You have 30 more? You have 40? I was just curious where it would stop. <laughs> now I'm learning. God's working with me. I'm learning to give you a meal that lasts about an hour. Don't want you so fat and full that it was a miserable experience. Hebrews 10. This verse says what I'm trying to teach about as plainly as a verse could possibly say it. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Wow, that sounds like a song that we sing today. You would know those words except I forgot to advance the slide. Don't you love that about me? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. I want you to get this. As we contemplate what a great high priest Jesus is, the way that you enter into the presence of God through His body that was torn like the curtain for you to give you access, the way that He tells you to hold fast to the, the hope which we profess, the tools that He gives you to do it, or that you submerge yourself in a fellowship where you spur one another on to greatness, where you encourage one another. The Bible faith is a communal faith. It's a faith that we enter into together and spur one another along in. It's not enough that Steve has great faith that God will provide for him financially. That great faith in him has to spur the great faith that is in Craig for healing on. And the great faith in Craig for healing needs to spur Steve on. By the way, spurring is not always a pleasant experience. Why did cowboys wear spurs? 
Because with a little sharp instrument, you can turn a great, big, powerful animal. Let me tell you a way somebody spurred me on to love, faith, holiness, godliness. I would claimed to be a Christian and was not. I dwelt in sin on a regular basis in every way that I could. I, in fact, I tried to take it further than most people because that's my personality. Standing in the circle of my peers, none of whom were in the body of Christ, but they were my peers. Most of us thought we were because we went to a Baptist school. God looks at me and He goes, Why are you wearing that? I was wearing a pink sock tie. Y'all remember those ugly things? Yeah, they... Late 80s, early 90s, something like that, they were popular. Around the time 16 Candles and all those movies came out. Wearing some kind of polo shirt and a pink sock tie, and on it I had a tie tack that said, Jesus loves you. When this man said, or boy really, why are you wearing that? It was as if somebody had kicked as hard as they could and dug a spur in my side. You say, oh wow, whoa, Eric was wounded. He was hurt. He was rejected by his peers. No, Eric was spurred on towards godliness because I realized I was not what I said that I was. Sometimes in the body of Christ, your friends will hurt you. Meaning to or not meaning to. The beautiful thing about it is it gives you the opportunity to see an area of your life that needs to get better. Cassidy's testimony was an awesome testimony. It's one of the most honest, powerful testimonies I've ever heard Sunday. When everybody was telling us why they were thankful for us in their lives, by the way, that was the best day of my life. Cassidy said that she was thankful that we loved her enough to tell her the truth. And sometimes that meant correction. That's a wise person, friends. That's a person with unlimited potential. Somebody that has learned to love correction. You know what is immature? What is ungodly? What is sinful? Even satanic? It says, I just want to be the way that I am. I'm going to hide in a shell, protect myself, not let anybody close, not let anybody... All anybody ever does is speak words of correction to me. Good, that means I love you. There's a phase of discipleship where you should feel like you get your hand slapped every day. Discipleship is discipline. It is learning. And the way that we learn is by trying and failing. You never learn by failing to try. It does not work that way. That is bearing the talent that you have and waiting for the Master to come back with no return. I won't tolerate it. Your brothers in Christ won't tolerate it. We are all going to lock arms and advance the kingdom. And forceful men do that. What's forceful about them? Are they militant? No, we don't serve a militant Jesus. What is forceful about men who advance the kingdom? They force themselves to be introspective. They force themselves to do what they don't want to do for the glory of God. That means be honest. That means be willing to change. Refuse to wear a facade. Realize that you get the respect of your peers by attempting to be like Jesus, not by only letting them see one side of you. Isn't that good? Is that good? See, I'm going to keep asking until you tell me. <laughs> All right. Proverbs 27:17 says, As... Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I am happy to be a stick of iron in your life, and I'm happy that you're iron in mine. That may mean that we have to love each other enough to knock off big, big chunks. How do you sharpen something? You have to file away a little bit of what it is until all that's left is something that is useful. (laughs) That doesn't sound like much fun, does it? But pray God for it. 
The more you grow in the body of Christ, the more you learn to love this. You look forward to it. You feel naked without it. The hardest moment in my life was when I arrived in Lafayette, Louisiana with just Jennifer. God had given me a helpmate and I was thankful for that. But for the first time in my Christian walk, I was not surrounded by a body like this one. I was not surrounded by the Justin Johnsons of the world, the Brad Livelys of the world. I was not surrounded by the Wade Sutherlands and the Gary Williams and the Matthew Peros. I was alone. And I didn't know how to act. In fact, one of the things that was hard is I realized I could act any way I wanted to. Nobody would know. That had never been a temptation before. As much as I didn't want to let Jesus down, I didn't want to let my friends down who esteemed me and I thought of them more highly than myself. I didn't want to let them down. That is a communal sense of faith. And when I began to feel that hollowness, that emptiness, and I wondered, it was hard not to dwell in pain and self-pity about all the sin that had got me where I was. My sin and other people's sin. And then I realized that hollowness was telling me, it's time to do this again. It's time to build this somewhere else. Eric, what you're feeling, you're feeling because it's time to do it again. About the time I got that revelation, a few people there got saved and spirit-filled, and I moved most of them to Texas. <laughs> yeah, God's prophetic word is leave Louisiana. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not really kidding, but I am kidding because it's being taped. If it weren't being taped, I wouldn't be kidding. <laughs> Y'all will put up with my foolishness for a little while, won't you? All right, go back to Ecclesiastes. I'm thankful for everything that is being accomplished in Louisiana. But after tasting the goodness that's in Texas, because this is where God called me, it seems like Egypt. What's funny is, the people there see their land as promised land and wherever they left as Egypt, because God's assigned each of us a field. I'm not worried about what's going on in their field. They're not worried about what's going on in my field. We're just worried about giving God some increase. You never see wheat growing by itself, though, do you? You know, there's no such thing as a single stalk of wheat growing in somebody's field. It grows collectively. You know why? It's better able to stand the pressures of the world while it's neatly filed and assembled in rows. You guys are a harvest. You're made to stand with one another. In fact, when you stand alone, you don't stand at all. So good to feel you're so strong. You're Rambo. You're God's mercenary. God's man of power for the hour. You can stand all by yourself and face the hordes of the enemy. You know how many people have thought that and not made it? I'm a pastor and I realize I can't stand alone. I get fearful for the mega ministries where there's only one name out front because I've seen that their history is that they don't make it. I pray for them and I pray that behind the scenes there are people that will speak honestly to them, that will love them, that will rebuke them openly no matter what great man they become because that's how we make it. It's not a person that doesn't need that. Even if you believe Peter was the first pope, which you probably don't or you wouldn't sit under my teaching, he never got too big for his britches that Paul couldn't rebuke him. And isn't it funny about Peter? Peter, James, John reported to be the pillars, right? Pillars of the faith. They concluded that Paul had been called to the Gentiles while they to the Jews, right? Doesn't that just seem backwards? Peter, James, John, all unlearned, ignorant fishermen. They've been with Jesus and we talk about that. But what an awkward pair to call to witness to the nation of Israel. The most learned scholars on the planet. The Gamaliels of the world. Wouldn't you have picked Paul to go to them? 
Wasn't he better suited for it? No, who did we send Paul to? We sent Paul to the people that were worshiping goats. People that were chasing chickens. Like me. He was trained, a Pharisee among Pharisees, and where did he get sent? God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? He will take you out of your element. He will make you feel awkward. He'll make you feel peculiar. He'll put you in a place that is uncomfortable for you so that you relax in him. Isn't that awesome? You should go through your life being uncomfortable. The only thing you should find contentment in is his presence. Everything else is subject to change. Where did I tell you to turn? Ecclesiastes, right? There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. Two are better than one. And Mark 6, 7. Jesus called His disciples together. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority to trample on all the power of the enemy. Why didn't He send them out as individuals? Because two are better than one. They have a better return for their labor. When I'm with you, I'm more complete. When I'm with you and Jesus, not easily torn apart, are we? In Acts 13, 2, the Spirit expressly said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've commissioned them to. Why didn't he just say set apart Barnabas? Why not set apart Saul? In fact, where are these ministries today? Where is the ministry that on the sign, in the big letters, it says the ministry of so-and-so and so-and-so? Why in America have we been so trained to have to see one great man, somebody who's different than everybody else, he's more lifted up, He's better than you are. He does things you can't do. And He's better at everything than you. I don't see this as the biblical type. I see the biblical type as the calling of somebody. The pairing of them with someone to help them because they are both weak and dependent upon the power of God. They go out and they minister together because neither one has all they need to have. And I'm saying pairs of two... Two just speaks of covenant. You're supposed to be in covenant with the whole body of Christ. Together we'll accomplish things I could never do alone. Was that meeting the other night? I would never have thought of having people sit down and write a letter to themselves. Might have even scoffed at the idea. I would never have cast lots to determine an order that we would pray and interact with each other in. But praise God, that was given to somebody else and it worked perfectly. It was even divinely anointed. Leaves me wondering, baffling. Do you mean God can work outside of the way Eric thinks they ought to work? Well, apparently so. <laughs> are you ever surprised or amazed to see God will work through people that are different than you? I never forget that tape Patricia sent me. I still preach about it all the time. Reinhard Bunker is in some Episcopalian church. They're wearing funny garb, funny hats. It's in another country. And he's praying for people to get baptized in the Holy Ghost. And they're getting baptized in the Holy Ghost. Then he looked across this old dry dead chapel to the other side. And the Episcopalian priest with his hat and everything else was praying for people and they were getting baptized in the Holy Ghost. And he said, Lord, you don't mind the... You know, made the hat motion here. He said the Lord spoke to him and said, Reinhardt, I don't mind! I don't mind! 
<laughs> Reinhardt said it doesn't matter. Just get God's work done. We can sit and point to the screw, the plane, the saw, all of those things all day long. It's like two roofers. One's working on this side of the roof. The other's working on the other side of the roof. And they're both criticizing the other one for being on the wrong side. At some point, you've got to meet at the top when the work's done and you've built the house for the Lord. I went to a Bridges for Peace meeting in Jerusalem and I was disgusted. <laughs> I looked around and the guys were not guys that I would normally hang out with. I had serious questions about their sexuality. Now that's because I'm a small-minded person. They were Europeans. Europeans are just a little different than us. They saw me as a barbarian. Can you imagine that? They saw me as a perfectly typical American that drives too big of cars, swings too big of a hammer, and talks too loud. You know? I watched the way they crossed their legs, the way they talked to each other, the motion of their hands, all of those things, and I'm seriously sitting there praying, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? I actually went up to one of the Americans who was there as part of their number, and I said, hey, dude, is this all right? Are these guys, you know, are they good guys? And he says, yeah, what do you mean? He had spent 20 years in Jerusalem. He had no idea. I said, well, they seem a little different. He goes, what do you mean? They love the Lord. I said, well, yeah, but do they, do they love women? <laughs> he laughed, you know. He goes, oh, I forget. This is your first time around a bunch of Europeans, isn't it? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. And he goes, no, no, no. These guys are just, they're different. No, none of them are different in that way, Eric. I almost excluded myself from 50 other spirit... Well, not all of them were spirit-filled. 50 other Christians that had a love for Israel were willing to spend their money and their lives doing something for God's kingdom because they looked and acted differently than me. And that was before I found out they weren't all spirit-filled. That was before I found out that some of them were pacifists. Some of them were... There are all kinds of people there. They had all kinds of different doctrinal beliefs. And it's funny how Jesus ran me into them everywhere I went. I sat on the beach in Elot looking out at the Red Sea next to a Lutheran pastor who believed that to look at somebody and say you must be born again was a serious personal assault and something you had no right to do. Okay? Now that was hard for me. <laughs> I started the conversation by telling him you must be born again. That's how we got into the conversation. Little time goes by though. I found out this guy had the same heart I do. He's just had different training. Now, I don't have to sit there and argue with him all day long about whether his training's right or my training's right. I can realize we're building different sides of the roof and he really did have a sincere love for the Lord. It's easy to miss that in all of the differences, isn't it? I missed it an awful lot. And I'm not telling you that we don't have to contend for good doctrine. We do. I'm not telling you that we have to put up with error in the body of Christ to the extent that it causes apostasy. Uh, we absolutely have to fight for what is right. But we need to be careful that we don't let somebody's mannerism separate us from the good work God's called us to do. Because that guy's laboring right alongside me. Now, I did share with him the baptism in the Holy Ghost, and he was not at all unreceptive to it. In fact, in the 70s, he had had an experience like that. But that was a strange, unique experience for him. And he had never met anybody except at that meeting in the 70s where that had occurred. Perhaps we both learned something that day, huh? Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says something interesting. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Y'all turn to Acts 14. Oh, wow, I'm running out of time, aren't I? Y'all, <laughs> problem with preaching is I talk too much. 
<laughs> Acts 14. This will be worth your while. Pity the one who falls and no one is there to help him up. In Acts 14, starting in verse 19, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Good thing he had some disciples around him, wasn't it? What if he was an island? What if he said, I don't need anybody but my Jesus, <laughs> my precious? What if? Sounds to me like Paul would be dead outside of these two cities. But his brothers wouldn't leave him fallen. Friends, I want to inspire you not to allow a brother or sister in any area of their life to be left for dead, stoned, and falling. There are casualties as we worship God. There are casualties as we advance the kingdom and try to do ministry's work. And one of the casualties is when an area of somebody's life that is called to be fruitful is stifled because they were hurt. They were embarrassed one time about something they said out loud in a church meeting, so now they won't speak out loud in a church meeting. They were made to feel stupid at some point in their life, so now they feel like everything they say is stupid. That is a casualty in the kingdom. And friends, the disciples have to gather around and raise you up. That only happens though if you're willing to dwell around them. That means putting up with the areas they've fallen in and died to. We're supposed to be transformed. I know I've been finding a different way to say that to you every week for lots of weeks. That comes from interacting with each other, sharpening each other. In Ecclesiastes 4 through 10 through 11, you hear this. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, there's a real temptation because the most obvious meaning of that is literally when you're lying down, it helps to have somebody beside you to keep you warm from the elements. But think about it in your face. Is it easier to stay excited, exuberant about this Jesus, powerful, full of His love and zeal, with someone or alone? Now, think about how much of your day that you spend doing different things. You alone? Are you with other people? It's always been strange. From the moment Jennifer and I were married, even newlyweds, time when most people thrived to be alone, our house has been like a revolving door and I wouldn't have it any other way. I am stronger. I stay warmer with you guys around. You're vulnerable when you're alone. All demonic activity happens under isolation. Always. Why the guy is alone among the tombs when Legion comes upon him. He wants to isolate you. He wants to eat you. He wants to pick you off. People have asked me, can they join our internet church? I've kind of revised my answer. I initially said no. And the reason that I said no was I didn't want people to isolate themselves from fellowship, to have a relationship with a computer screen, and that's it. I've learned to say yes. Join our internet church and find a way to fellowship on your own. Get all you can from me and get it everywhere else you can too. Interact with everybody you can everywhere you can because that's what God's called you to do. God did not call you to lose your life in a computer sitting alone in your house or at your workplace or anywhere else. 
Our society is increasingly becoming individualistic and isolated because you can reach the globe with the touch of a button from your room. There's no reason to go meet with people. I hear these advertisements that say you can have your sales meetings. You don't have to fly to home office. You don't have to travel here or there. You can have them online with some kind of net meeting thing. They miss the point. That's not why people get together for sales meetings. They don't get together for real instruction. That's the excuse. They get together to hear how the other salesmen are doing, to be encouraged by their stories, to feel their camaraderie, to have a sense of community in the company. That's a worldly thing that is a copy of something very spiritual. Not enough for you to just sit at home and listen to these messages. You have to get with other people and experience the truth in these messages with each other. I think about that every day. I've got two parents that I love very much. This is the primary source that they are fed from. They listen to us every Sunday. They're a part of you. I encourage you to think about them and pray for them because they are a part. But that is not enough. They've had to look at their ministry being their workplace. Looking at interacting and loving people in their workplace as if it were the body of Christ, hoping to extend the body of Christ there. That's the only way they can do it because that's the only thing that's healthy for a Christian. It's what's wrong with TV ministry. It's impersonal. You sit and watch a movie star on a screen. That's not enough. It cannot work that way. You must interact with people to stay warm. I need to wrap this up. In Ecclesiastes, the last part of 11, it says, But how can one keep warm alone? If you think of warm as your intimacy with Jesus, I have found my intimacy with Jesus grows exponentially when I'm around other people that love Jesus. Matthew and I, and several other men, but I continually use Matthew because I know him well enough knowing Hamlet, have an intimacy and a warmth with Jesus that is fueled by one another. You need to be able to say that you have that with somebody. You need to be able to say that you have that with more than one person. Eventually, we need to be able to say that we have that, all of us, with each other. That's what a fellowship is. It's what we're working towards. Not just with the one you're comfortable with. You need to go get with the one you're uncomfortable with. That's why God sent the greatest Jew that ever lived to the Gentiles and common Jews to the other great Jews. That's why He did that. That's why He sends dark-skinned people to light-skinned people and light-skinned people to dark-skinned people as far as missionary work goes. You read it through the centuries. Isn't it amazing? Why send a Caucasian to the darkest jungles in Africa? Because it is hard to receive when somebody does not look and act like you, but it's necessary for the gospel. Why send somebody of olive or brown skin to the Caucasians? Because of the same exact reason. This is how God's economy works. Works the same way in the body of Christ. You'll be fed the most from people that you don't have the most in common with. Quit hanging around people just like you. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4, speaks of David's love for Jonathan. It says that they were one in spirit and they loved each other more than they loved themselves. Another translation of another verse says that their love was greater than that of the kind of love that a man has for a woman. So what on earth could that mean? People have made ugly things out of that verse. I know exactly what it means. It means it's a love that's not based on anything physical. It's a love that's not based on wanting some gratifying feeling from each other. It's a love that's based on serving God together and finding fulfillment in that. 
I one time gave Brad, Love, Brad Lively an impassioned hug outside of work. Maiden kissed his neck. I don't know. Brad and I have been close a long, long time. A co-worker saw that in the distance and I didn't know it. Treated me differently for about two weeks. I finally said, what is going on? He said, I saw the way you hugged that guy. Something's wrong with you. I had no idea. And I said, no, man, we're Christians. He goes, well, I'm a Christian too, but we don't hug like that. I said, well, you need to think about that, my friend. That was a turning point in that kid's life. He got beat up in a bar in New Orleans at Mardi Gras not long after that. I think it was a beating of God's appointment. He started to take honest assessment of his life after that. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps there was no one there to help him up if he fell down. That will cause you to seek fellowship. Not fellowship with the Bloods or the Crips. Not fellowship in the local bar. Fellowship in the local church. Do you remember that cheer song? I went to a church where they did that as their altar call. Everybody wants to go where somebody knows their name. That's supposed to be the church, guys. He'll build you a great name inside these walls. 1 Samuel 14. Jonathan has a helper with him. They were one in heart and soul, and they advanced against an entire garrison of Philistines. They went through suffering, and they went through glory, but they achieved the goal. All it took was to be heart and soul. It said, when Jonathan knocked one down, the helper put the sword to him. When the helper knocked one down, Jonathan put the sword to it. There's something to be said for working in tandem in the kingdom. I want to close with Moses, and I'm over my time. Forgive me. The Bible says in the 12th verse of Ecclesiastes 4, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I want you to consider Moses' life for a minute. Moses was called of God from birth, wasn't he? Put in a special basket. Survived the crocodiles in the river. God ordained his upbringing. He trained him in all the ways of Egypt. He was called with an anointing unlike any man on the planet at the time. And when setting out to do God's work, what did he say? I can't do it alone. I need some help. God said, hey, wait a minute. Who made man's mouth? Who made man's ears? But I give you Aaron. And he gave him Aaron. Then God put His Spirit in both of them and taught both of them, He said. You can read about that in Exodus 4. That made Moses a more effective leader. Made Moses a better man, a more fulfilled person, but that wasn't enough. You don't just need a brother. And Aaron was his brother, by the way. What Ecclesiastes 4 teaches us you also needed? A son. You don't just need somebody to walk with you. You need somebody to build into. Who was his son? Did he come from his body? No, he had Gershom. He had sons from his own body, but that's not who the Bible describes as his son. Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua in Exodus 33 followed Moses into the tent of meeting where the cloud would descend and Moses would speak with God face to face. And long after Moses had left and everybody else left, Joshua stayed there because he wanted to be just like Moses. And he was just like Moses. When Moses went on to be with the Lord, he raised up Joshua in his place. A healthy human being will have somebody to run alongside in the race as well as somebody to pour into. They don't have to come from your own body. They can come from anywhere. God will bring in other exiles just like us, other eunuchs, other foreigners, and He will raise up people for you to run with and pour into because that's His will for your life. This week, I want you to think about who you run with and who you pour into. And I already told you, Barnabas and Paul, Matthew and Eric, the roles change sometimes. 
Sometimes you're just running alongside each other's brothers and sometimes one of you is in a teacher role with the other. just depends on what God's doing. And that's okay because you love each other like you love yourselves. And then it's great. I love Jesus. I want to be a threefold cord. John 14.20 teaches that when Jesus is in you and you're in Jesus because Jesus is in the Father, all three of you are in perfect unity. You're a threefold cord with God. John 17.20 says it in such a way that it's absolutely unmistakable. It says, Because I'm in you, Father, and they're in me, we're one. How's that for a oneness gospel? Go back and read those verses sometimes. It speaks of everybody is absolutely separate and everybody is absolutely one. That's what we want. We want to be that way in His body and we want to be that way in reality in the Spirit. Guys, you can't be one with Jesus without being one with His people. You cannot love Jesus' Holy Spirit without loving the people that He fills. You cannot do it. You can't love His work without loving His work displayed in the people sitting around you. Y'all stand up. Let's pray that we become one.